Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me on the Facebook page throughout the week, and you can also listen to this and other episodes as a podcast. Uh, you can do that on your favorite podcasting source, such as iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now, as you probably already know, this week is Pledge Week. Uh, VFR is completely run on donations with a little bit of underwriting, and the majority of our operating costs come from listeners like you. We don't get a single cent from the government, uh, not any grants or anything like that, and we don't accept commercials. And so this is a really important time for us. We're completely independent. Uh, and so we rely on the community, both for members, people to actually be on the station, and obviously for financial backing. Uh, this year, we've added a host of new shows, uh, including a Latin music show, a hip hop show, uh, a couple of jazz shows, and a uh, couple of Asian music shows, which I'm particularly happy about, uh, OK Asia and, um, oh goodness, I'm forgetting what the other one is, uh, I Heart J-Rock. There it is. <laughs> um, so you can make a one-time donation or there is a subscription button. So you could actually give uh, every month, just a little bit every month, and every little bit helps to keep us on the air. Now, I've been at the station for over four years now, and it's really grown into a wonderful community of people who care deeply about the station and are interested in keeping the community informed and having you be able to listen to a variety of underserved musical genres. Now, tonight I want to do sort of a highlight tour of what I uh, tend to feature on the program so we'll do a couple of science stories. We'll do a profile of a woman uh, in science that you may almost certainly you haven't heard of before. Uh, we'll talk about the attack on reason and science in both medicine and uh, by extension other realms of science, which of course ties into my interest in skepticism. And then we will end with a science-themed song, which is pretty exciting. So let us get going. First off, I wanted to talk about a couple stories about dogs, because lots of people like dogs. I was going to say who doesn't like dogs, but plenty of people don't like dogs, but I do. And I also think that they're very interesting, and they do have a long history with human beings. So zooarchaeologist Angela Perry reported at the annual meeting of the Society for American Archaeology earlier this month that a trio of dogs, which were buried at two ancient human sites in Illinois, lived around 10,000 years ago. And why this is important is because it pushes back the oldest known domesticated canines in the Americas back 1,500 years. Now, burned wood found in one of the graves was actually used to do the carbon dating. Um, and so that's how they determined the approximate age of the animals. Previous to this, the oldest dogs were from a Texas site dated to around 9,300 years ago. Now, those dogs, the Texas dogs, it seems, were actually uh, potentially eaten by humans. But these new canines 
don't show any signs of tool marks, and so they probably died of natural causes. And because they were buried in individual graves, we think that they were probably actually beloved pets, potentially, um, or very hardworking uh, work dogs. So Perry of Durham University in England noted that these are now the oldest dogs ever to have been individually buried anywhere in the world. Now, again, previous to this, the oldest burial of a dog was a dog that had been buried in a German archaeological site called Bonn Oberkassel, where it was interred in a two-person grave around 14,000 years ago. Now, some researchers have actually suggested that the first inhabitants of the Americas would have arrived by dog sled. It's known that by 15,000 years ago, the ancestors of today's Native Americans had already reached South America. However, remains of dogs have not been found in the northwestern portion of North America. As much as we want to believe that dogs initially pulled us into the New World, that may not have been the case, Perry said. Instead, she and other researchers suggest that the first wave of settlers did not actually have dogs, but rather that it was a second wave of settlers who crossed over from Asia around 11,500 years ago and who moved into the northern Great Plains, who most likely brought dogs to the Americas. Now, these are not recent discoveries. Two of the dogs were excavated in the 1970s from a site called Coster, and another was excavated at Stillwell 2 in 1960. Now, the two sites are around 30 kilometers apart in west-central Illinois. The team found that for the dog from Stillwell 2 and one of the dogs from Coster, that the jaws actually displayed similarities to modern wolves. The second dog from Coster actually shared some similarities with present-day coyotes, and so that may actually indicate ancient interbreeding between these dogs and wolves and uh, coyotes who were already present. So ancient American dogs, including the three Illinois remains, actually share a common genetic ancestor. This ancestor would have split off from a closely related Siberian dog population around 16,000 years ago and then developed into the ancestor of American dogs around 15,000 years ago. Interestingly, much of the genetic legacy of these dogs is actually absent from present-day breeds. It turns out that when European dogs came into the Americas, they largely took over, reshaping the genetic makeup of today's American canines. And so um, it's really interesting to find out about how they were not necessarily traveling with the first group of Americans. Uh, and of course, we're still very much in a uh, learning situation when it comes to how the first Americans came to the U.S. Um, or to the Americas, I should say. Uh, <laughs> and so there are definitely still a lot of people sort of pushing and pulling between the idea of a land bridge and uh, seafaring, and it might have been a combination of the two, in fact. But it looks like these people came a little bit later and came directly into the Midwest with their dogs. 
And I actually have a second dog story today. Um, So this one's actually kind of heartwarming. So I do like that. Uh, But first, before we uh, do that, I do again want to remind you that this is Pledge Week. And so that if you have a few dollars that you can spare, uh, every little bit helps. You just go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Uh, We are completely dependent on the generosity of our listeners and our community. We are completely nonprofit and completely free from any support outside of the community. And so um, one of the things for me is that I've met an amazing array of people through the station. And I just think that it is such a great place to come and to be able to broadcast to my friends and neighbors. And I really want to be able to keep bringing you stories of science and skepticism, uh, especially from a feminist take, given uh, some of the recent events in the science and skepticism uh, community. Um, <laughs> and so uh, you can make a one-time donation. Uh, you can sign up for a reoccurring subscription. Uh, just a couple of dollars every month really helps. Um, and again, you would just go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, and so, yeah, so let us talk about another great dog story. And by the way, if you've already donated, thank you so much. Um, I know it's the end of the week, so you may have already donated. Uh, So thank you so much if you have done that. And so yeah, let us get back to dogs. This next story comes from Chile, where three plucky dogs are helping to reseed a burnt forest. And so the El Male region of central Chile has actually faced a series of fires. Um, And so 11 lives have been lost and uh, the fires have destroyed a total of 457,000 hectares. And so it's just a really, there's been some really giant forest fires. And so in order to help reseed the forest, Three border collies have been outfitted with special backpacks that spread seeds of grasses, trees, flowers, and mushrooms as they run through the forest. The main thing is for the fauna to be able to live, says Francesca Torres, the owner of the three dogs tasked with this big mission. Uh, And she is out there along with her sister, Constanza. And so the three female dogs, a six-year-old named Das and her daughters, Olivia and Summer, can cover a range of over 18 miles a day and sow up to 22 pounds of seeds. Now, contrast that with a person who could probably do maybe a mile and three quarters, two at the most, uh, because it's not just walking in a straight line. It's, you know, walking around and through things and over things. And uh, so it's a lot harder for people to do it. So Torres runs an NGO called Pewos. And so they actually uh, also they train dogs to aid people with disabilities. So a lot of um, her training is in basically working with uh, support dogs. So this was pretty easy to uh, translate from doing that to doing uh, reseeding a forest. And so the dogs have actually been hard at work in 15 forests throughout the region. 
In some of the forests, grass and seedlings, vines and mushrooms are already starting to rise out of the ashes with the moisture provided by the Southern Hemisphere's winter. We have seen some fields that are now totally green thanks to the work of Summer, Olivia and Das, said Torres. And so she and her sister largely actually pay for the work out of their own pockets. So they're doing this amazing thing. Um, and so they're hoping that by summer, foxes, hares, and lizards will begin to return to the once devastated areas. And um, I will post on the Facebook page uh, either later tonight or tomorrow a uh, video. You can see a video of these adorable dogs <laughs> basically just frolicking through the forest. And that's all they have to do. They don't have to do anything. They're just running through because they've designed these special sort of saddlebag backpacks that are just open. So when they jump around, the seeds just kind of fall out along the trail. And it's just really... Um, you know, this, the reason I liked this story, not just because, of course, adorable dogs, but also because it's just such a great um, and, in, and just ingenious way to do something that could potentially be really hard and really take a long time. And they were able to just figure it out and put these adorable dogs out there making the world a better place. <laughs> so sometimes it's nice to have just a genuinely heartwarming story about puppy dogs making the world a better place. <laughs> I know that I uh, sometimes have stories that are kind of depressing. Um, and I can't say that everything tonight is 100% positive. Because uh, I do want to talk about uh, some medical quackery later. But uh, I just thought this was such a nice story. Okay. But we can't talk about puppies all night. I know I would love to, and maybe someday I'll do a special all on dogs. But tonight I wanted to bring you uh, several different things. So one of the things that almost inevitably happens on my show is that I tend to always end up with space stories. NASA has been doing an amazing amount of things lately, NASA and the ESA. Um, and so there's just been so much... Uh, so many space stories and also just physics has been doing a lot of amazing things as well. Um, and so, again, uh, I do love bringing these stories to you and I can't do it if I don't have uh, this studio to do it in. And if we don't get um, donations from our lovely listeners, then we can't pay the rent and we can't pay the electricity bill and... Um, we can't buy great equipment. Like we just got this new CD player, um, that is really helping the people who do, uh, music shows. And, um, you know, we don't have any overhead at all at the station. Every penny that you give to us goes directly into things like paying the rent or, uh, buying new equipment or, um, you know, things like that. We don't have anyone who is paid. There's literally no one on the payroll at Belly Free Radio. It's completely volunteer. And um, so, yeah, we really appreciate your help. Okay. So you've probably already heard about this, but in case you hadn't, I thought it was a fun uh, space story to bring you tonight during Pledge Week. And so this is a study published in Nature Astronomy which uh, states that Uranus's upper atmosphere is filled with hydrogen sulfide. 
Um, and so that is, of course, one of the most smelly chemicals uh, known to man. It's what makes rotten eggs and human flatulence smell so terrible. And we're actually really good at smelling it. According to the EPA, we can smell as little as three parts per billion molecules in a given sample of air. If an unfortunate human were ever to descend through Uranus's clouds, they would be met with very unpleasant and odiferous conditions, Patrick Irwin, a physicist at the University of Oxford who led the study, said in a statement. And so researchers had long suspected that the planet's atmosphere contained this gas. Um, but it wasn't until recently uh, that obs recent observations that they were actually able to confirm with confidence that the gas was really there. So uh, what they did was they used the Gemini North Telescope, which is on um, Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And so the team studied reflected sunlight from the planet, uh, and they did that in the infrared scale in order to uh, determine the composition of the planet's atmosphere. Um, and so it's been really hard to detect what's going on uh, because apparently when you have a planet that has a lot of cloud cover that actually hides the composition of the gases that form the clouds from observations by telescopes. So it turns out that the clouds end up being sort of atop the layers that would be able to be detected by telescopes. So the clouds aren't uh, necessarily thick enough for the telescope to be able to actually peer through them and um, or peer into them but they're thick enough to keep the uh, telescope from peering past them. <laughs> uh, and so it was only because of a bit of luck and some really insensitive instruments that they were actually able to discover a whiff of the gas. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> only a tiny amount remains above the clouds as a saturated vapor, said Fletcher, who is a planetary scientist at the University of Leicester in Britain. The senior, the superior capabilities of Gemini finally gave us that lucky break. Now, of course, this is great news for school children everywhere uh, that will allow them to add to their jokes about uh, Uranus. Uh, but it also has a very serious application. Knowing about the composition of Uranus's atmosphere can aid in our understanding of how the solar system was formed. And so according to the press release on the findings, this information will be, quote, invaluable in understanding Uranus's birthplace, evolution, and refining models of planetary migrations. So um, in case you were unaware or forgot uh, from, you know, sort of childhood astronomy, the current location of the planets in the solar system, especially those in the outer solar system, those aren't where the planets would have initially formed. They have actually, there's actually been some mixing and migrating over time. And so where they are in their present locations is not where uh, some of them started, especially those gas giants have kind of moved around. Jupiter, I believe, has come sort of forward in the solar system. And so Glenn Orton, a co-author of the new study and a planetary scientist at Natural 
at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory told Business Insider that the new research points to, quote, evidence of a big shakeup early on in the solar system's formation. And so this is really interesting information, and hopefully it will help us to learn more about how the solar system formed and how things uh, were able to shift around in order to create the solar system that we know today. And so the researchers have actually already started working on a proposal for a new Uranus probe that would enable them to learn more about the atmosphere of this amazing ice giant. So basically, it would be um, the kind of probe where it would go to the planet and then it would sort of plunge through the planet's atmosphere, taking readings as it sort of fell through the atmosphere. Um, And because it is an ice giant, uh, a gas giant, Uh, It would not actually sort of hit land. It would eventually probably just be crushed by the pressure um, as it fell through the atmosphere. But we can still get some really good data before that happens. (laughs) Okay. So again, I have to remind you that this is Pledge Week. week, And uh, if you are able to pledge, that is super. If you're not right now, uh, we do accept pledges at any time of the year um, because we do rely on them. Um, Again, we are all volunteer. We do not um, take any money from, uh, you know, corporations or anything like that. We don't have commercials. We do have a bit of underwriting. But other than that, um, it is the amazing community that we serve that supports us. And so, yeah, uh, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay, so now I want to talk about one of my favorite things on the show, which is an amazing female scientist uh, that you have probably never heard of. Uh, And so, yeah, um, her name is Annie Easley, and she is very cool. Uh, she, well, she has unfortunately passed away, um, but she was a pioneering computer scientist. And so, uh, Easley first read about human computers in 1955. She was reading an article, uh, which told the story of twin sisters working at the aircraft engine research laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio for NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which uh, is not surprisingly one of the precursors of NASA. And so the lab, uh, which would actually go on to become the NASA Glenn Research Center, needed individuals with strong math skills to work on problems that, well, (laughs) frankly, now are taken care of by you know, electronic computers. (laughs) So as most of us know, uh, computers were originally people who actually did computations. Uh, They were people with high math skills who spent every day working on calculations that now take electronic computers mere milliseconds to solve. Um, We have come a long way uh, in the last... uh, 80 or so years when it comes to computing. And so uh, two weeks after reading that article about those twins, she actually uh, applied and became one of just four African-American employees at the lab. 
Now, she didn't set out to become a pioneer or a trailblazer. And, uh, you know, all throughout her career, she was very humble about it and was very much interested in the work and being able to do the work and not worry about such things. Um, But basically what happened was she needed the job. (laughs) She'd, She'd recently relocated from Birmingham, Alabama, and turned out she had the skills necessary to excel in this new field of uh, computing and eventually uh, working with electronic computers. So she had actually come to Cleveland with her new husband. Uh, His parents actually lived in the area, which is why they were moving there. And she had expected to carry on with her pharmacy degree. So she'd been working on a pharmacy degree in uh, at Xavier University in New Orleans. Unfortunately, uh, by the time they made it to Cleveland, the pharmacy school at the local university had closed. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it turns out that her uh, path kind of got uh, relocated, shall we say. Um, And so, yeah, she ended up needing to do something else because she no longer had a place to go to finish that particular degree. Now, um, she did this amazing oral history uh, interview in 2001. And uh, so she spent some time talking about um, someone was interviewing her and basically said, like, you know, again, how did you become this amazing pioneer and trailblazer? And so um, what she said was, I didn't feel like a minority. I'm less. I just have my own attitude. I'm here to work. You may look at me. Someone else may look at me and see something different, but that's okay. But I'm out here to do a job and I knew I had the ability to do it. And that's where my focus was on getting the job done. I was not intentionally trying to be a pioneer. I wanted a job. I wanted to work, but it was never a poor me, though I know I'm not so unaware that I don't know what's going on around me. She continued, my head is not in the sand, but my thing is, if I can't work with you, I will work around you. I was not about to be so discouraged that I'd walk away. That may be a solution for some people, but it's not mine. And so, yeah, she was clearly an amazing and super strong woman who was out there to get things done. (laughs) Um, And so her first assignment was running simulations for the newly planned Plum Brook Reactor Facility. And so she did that for a while. Um, But as electronic computers began to supplant these original human computers, easily actually adapted and became a skilled programmer. So she learned Fortran and SOAP, uh, early computer programming languages, and went on to work on several of NASA's programs. So, um, for instance, she developed code used in researching energy conversion systems. She worked on analyzing alternative power technologies, including working on uh, the early generation of batteries that ended up in hybrid vehicles. And she also worked on the Centaur upper stage rocket. In the 1970s, she decided to return to school and earned her degree in mathematics from Cleveland State. 
she actually spent the the majority of her time both going to school and working full time. Now, like many pioneering African-American women of the time, her mother had inspired her to be whatever she wanted, as long as she put in the effort. And so what's really great is that she was able to carry that message to others, both by participating in school tutoring projects, but also as an active participant in NASA's Speakers Bureau. She inspired many students, especially young women and students of color, to consider that they could have a future in STEM fields. Um, And so, yeah, she also took some time uh, later on in her career to have a more active role as sort of an activist, but never really calling it that. And so she did take on the role for a while as an equal opportunity Um, an equal employment opportunity counselor. And so she worked to address issues of gender, race, and age discrimination, which is with as much grace and cooperation as possible. And so people were really uh, just spent a lot of time talking about how she was just this amazing person who could work with anything, anyone and do anything. um, And just was apparently just absolutely a um, person who led by um, her actions and not by anything else. And so she was also a trailblazer in other more subtle ways. For instance, at one point she made an agreement with her supervisor to wear a pantsuit. She noted again in the 2001 interview, I can remember the first pants that I wore to work. It was in 1970. In fact, I talked to my room supervisor about, because we'd started to wear pants in the outside world, and I said something to her about, I have a pantsuit. I'd really love to wear it to work. So we made a pact that we'd come to work the next day in pants, and it did cause quite a stir. But there was one woman who said, I was just waiting for the first one to wear pants. I don't think she wore a dress ever after that. So... That's a change. You know, we took the emphasis off what you're wearing. It was more like what you're actually producing. But no, we didn't have any dress. We didn't have any written dress codes. But there were certain things that you knew were acceptable or not. (laughs) And so, yeah, um, she was a super, super progressive person who just basically not progressive in the sense of, you know, again, it's one of these people who just sort of effortlessly is able to be a leader and a trailblazer without ever thinking about it. Um, she's certainly not one of those people who went out to become a trailblazer. She was just apparently a really cool lady. <laughs> um, and so throughout the interview, Easley continually spoke about her joy Uh, for the work and her love of the team atmosphere that she had felt the facility really excelled at. Um, And she worked really hard on working, making, on working to make the lab an enjoyable place. Uh, She was a founding member of the ski club, apparently having started to ski at the age of 46. She was also very active in the children's Christmas play Uh, in various athletics, and the Business and Professional Women's Association. Now, again, as with many early computers, she really actually used a computer in her later days. Uh, She preferred being out and doing activities like golf or skiing. Now, 
easily uh, retired from NASA in 1989 and passed away on June 25th, 2011. Now, there were so many amazing women in the early days of NASA, uh, and so it was nice that the job of computer was actually open to women, and especially to women of color. And I'm really glad that their stories have uh, been coming to light and that they are finally gaining ground and being recognized for their accomplishments. Now, of course, there were less rosy parts of the story, even from Easley, who tried really hard to sort of put a positive spin on it. And so she related in the interview um, one story about basically having been cut out of a picture of people working on a project. She'd been working hard on a project with the with this group, and someone had taken a picture, and they were having some sort of you know open house day or something like that, and so um, they were planning to put pictures up uh, in the lobby and uh, around the facility, and basically they took a picture that she had been in, and they cut her out of it before they blew it up and hung it in the facility. Uh, and this is despite the fact that she was an integral part of that ta- of that team. She wasn't just, you know, there to get the coffee or anything like that. And so that is the kind of erasure that I'm hoping that we will be able to overcome um, and that we will continue to find the lost and purposely forgotten women who have contributed great things to science. And I hope that I will be able to continue to bring you, the listeners, these stories and to help wade through some of the more questionable science reporting that is out there in the mainstream news. And of course, in order to do that, the station needs to be able to, again, pay the rent, the electricity bills, to be able to buy new equipment. Um, And yeah, so every donation helps. You just need to go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, And so, yeah, well, let us take a break for some regular old PSAs and show promos. And I will be back in a little bit. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old, and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from from the heart, soul, and mind. Most magazines emphasize the outside when it's the inside that really matters. And change in society would be most ideal for everyone. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? 
Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. Listen up, employers. Veterans can be a great asset to your company or organization. Veterans have gained skills in leadership, teamwork, and performance under pressure. Veterans have received the very best training in their fields and are never afraid to tackle a tough situation to accomplish the mission. If you are looking to hire a veteran, the Department of Labor can help you make it happen. You hire a veteran today, you won't be sorry. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. The Lilly Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You are are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Okay, we are back. And so one of the things that I read recently that is pretty cool, uh, at least somewhat encouraging, I should say, is um, there is a recent study by David Miller, a PhD candidate at Northwestern University. And he uh, published in the journal Child Development. And these, this is the result of a meta-study of 78 different studies published between 1996 and 2016, which involved more than 20,000 children. And so what he was looking at was how often uh, women were depicted as scientists in children's drawings. And so um, initially, when they started doing these studies, um, in uh, 1966 to 1977, uh, there was a study, early research, with 5,000 children. And when asked to draw a scientist, only 28 children 
all of them girls drew a woman. So 99% of them drew boys. Now, um, closer to a third of those pictures would now be women, which is really great. With one caveat, which is that it turns out that as the children grow older, the ratio actually starts to revert back to a ratio of four to one for men. And so what he notes is that the stereotypes about scientists have become less masculine over time. But the reemergence of gender stereotypes at older ages reflects children's growing awareness of cultural norms. And so, uh, yeah, it is unfortunate and hopefully we can continue to make this better. And so, um, so Miller suspects that this will lead to sort of a uh, chicken and egg uh, situation so that as more kids imagine women in STEM, uh, girls will be more likely to choose STEM careers and then the next generation will actually see more female scientists. Now, uh, there are definitely many more female scientists out there in the world today than there were 50 years ago. Um, and of course, there are a lot more pulp cultural references to women in science. And so um, it's really important to continue to show women in science to our kids so that they are continuing to sort of associate them with with science. And also, I would say, uh, people of color as well, because that is another really, really, really underserved population for uh, going into STEM. And of course, one of the problems with people who, uh, with minorities and with women not going into STEM fields is that they uh, are underrepresented. And we end up with a lot of studies that favor uh, sort of, uh, in medicine in particular, the physiology of men, because there weren't any women to say, hmm, maybe it would affect women differently. Okay, so let us talk about another one of the sort of perennial topics here at my show, uh, which is, of course, the clash between medicine and alternatives to medicine. Now, I always like to preface this with the uh, fact that I fully support the idea that our healthcare system in this country is deeply broken, but I believe that much of that is due to capitalism. Um, and this is an argument that I've made on several occasions. <laughs> uh, I truly believe that healthcare should not be something that is left to the mercy of the market. Um, and we also have an unhealthy way in which doctors are trained. Um, and so that really needs, again, to be reformed as well uh, so that we can create a more sustainable system. Um, there's a lot of basically people doing, you know, three days straight awake and working in residencies. And it's just, it's crazy. Um, and also just the ability still of people to be able to go into those fields is um, somewhat difficult. And so, yeah, um, what I wanted to talk about tonight, though, is this problem with alternative medicine. And so it is largely based on pre-scientific notions about how the body works. 
And just because something is natural does not actually make it safe. And so, for instance, last summer, an Amish man, Samuel A. Gerard, was sentenced to six years in prison for selling a patent medicine and for witness tampering, frankly. Um, and so he was selling what he called two more gone, uh, which he claimed could cure skin disorders, sinus infections, and cancer. This is straight up pat patent medicine, straight out of the 19th century. And of course, you know, there is something to be said about the fact that he is Amish, which of course, I also will note, um, and I noted at um, I do note that he is clearly not representative of all Amish people. <laughs> and so um, he was using an extract of bloodroot or sanguinaria canadensis. And so this compound includes benzyl isoquinoline. And that is actually, um, actually, it is an alkaloid. And so these alkaloids are toxic and highly caustic. Uh, so alkaloids are extremely base. So, um, and yeah, it is not good stuff. Uh, these alkaloids kill animal cells on contact. Um, and so another more infamous form of this sort of patent medicine is something that's called black solve. Um, and it's just, it's really terrible. It's basically just, it, it just dissolves everything underneath it. Um, and so these sorts of nostrums are generally, generally sold as being able to tell the difference between healthy and cancerous cells and to attack only the cancerous ones. But this is not the way that things work. Nothing could be further from the truth. As Dr. Stephen Novella writes for Science-Based Medicine, this is untrue and actually quite absurd. These substances are simply caustic. They kill everything. They are similar in effect to pouring acid on your skin. Using these products is likely to cause disfiguring lesions and is unlikely to completely remove a cancer. And actually at the website, there is a link to uh, some pictures of those lesions. And it has a warning that says, basically, this is terrible. Click at your own risk. And I will not be uh, linking to that on the Facebook page because it is terrible. And um, I just, you know, it's just, it's such a terrible thing. Um, and it's so just incredibly sad that people are, you know, um, trying to cure their cancer and all they're doing is basically burning holes in themselves. Now, um, important to note here is how the cognitive dissonance of this works. And so basically, uh, they are allowing something that is more harmful and less effective than the chemotherapy and surgery that they are actually usually trying to avoid. And, you know, it's because this basically has a label that says it's natural. And of course, in this case, it was being sold by someone who had the aura of coming from a, a simpler time. And so Gerard, for his 
for his part, tried to argue that he was not bound by the laws of the U.S. and that the U.S. could not operate within the bounds of the state of Kentucky, which is, of course, a ridiculous argument, um, which did not work for him. Uh, he also prevented FDA agents from inspecting his manufacturing process. And again, he tampered with a federal witness. He basically uh, tried to uh, intimidate a witness into not testifying against him. Now, of course, the natural health community came out to support him. And this is one of the reasons that I'm so adamant about exposing the fraud of natural medicine. This man was selling literal poison. And yet, because he slapped an all-natural label on it, people rallied to his defense. Now, again, I do want to note that I only brought up that he was Amish because it lended to his authority as an alternative healthcare provider. And there is no indication that his faith had anything at all to do with his actions. Um, and in fact, many of his actions are in direct conflict with uh, traditional Amish faith, which is all about uh, not having pride. And um, yeah, can't really see that as working out for him. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Um, but part of the reason that, again, this makes me so upset and makes me want to talk about it so much is that real evidence-based medicine is losing the public relations fight. Because no, make no mistake, it is slick marketing and the ability to tap into people's anxieties about their health and about death that is what drives the recent resurgence in natural health. It's not because these modalities based on pre-scientific thinking are actually useful. Rather, it's because you can easily set up shop as an alternative medicine provider, often with little to no preparation or oversight, and begin parting people from their hard-earned money. It grieves me that supporters for evidence-based medicine are losing this fight. And so the integration of things like acupuncture and Reiki into modern medicine represents a step backwards in our progress towards better health care for all. And that's why I'm so passionate about bringing these stories to people's attention. And so, yeah, I think it's important to separate science from corporate greed and from capitalism. And so I think it's really, really, really important to have um, alternative voices as well. Uh, I know that, for instance, on this very radio station, there are voices that are very much alternative to mine. Um, but the nice thing is, is that we can both have a voice here on Valley Free Radio because we are able to have that kind of freedom. We don't have to be beholden to anyone. And there's no overarching theme for the station that we have to abide by. So again, if you want to support that, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, but I do want to just finish up before we transition to the song, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> um, I just, I just learned about it today, which is why I'm so excited about it. But again, I want to press this point that it's important to separate science from corporate greed and from capitalism. The reason why we have such a strong alternative medicine industry in this country is due to the fact that we have a lot of people who are wealthy and can afford to buy into things that don't work, and even more importantly, to support politicians who keep them from being regulated, while simultaneously having a lot of people who can't afford quality medical interventions, and therefore often resort to alternative medicine because it's cheaper in the short term. Now, it's just unfortunate that this is a lot of 
greed. And so, for instance, people rally rail against big pharma, which I totally get. But a lot of those uh, big pharma places own the uh, the vitamin uh, companies that people are buying vitamins from, for instance. And so, yeah, it's just a vicious cycle. But let's end tonight on an upswing <laughs> instead. Uh, so I wanted to wrap up with a song by Public Service Broadcasting, and it's called Sputnik. And I would definitely suggest looking into the band if you like this song. They have a lot of great other stuff. Uh, there's one called Go, uh, which is also about uh, space and uh, astronauts. So yeah, so let's listen to Sputnik. This is the beginning of a new era for mankind. The era of man's cosmic existence. You will now hear the voice of the Russian moon.
This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.